Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Alice Rackley, CEO of tech startup Polytag. Polytag works in the recycling sphere and has developed technology to help brands and retailers tag and trace their plastic packaging. So Alice talks to me about the problems with our current recycling system and the lack of data on what happens with packaging once the product has been consumed. Plus, we talk about what to expect from various deposit return schemes, extended producer responsibility, the new UN Plastic Waste Treaty, and more. So that's coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed with some of the big food and grocery retail stories this week. MNS CEO Steve Rowe is stepping down after six years in the role, with Stuart Machen to take over and Katie Bickerstaff to become co-CEO. Rowe will officially step down on the 25th of May. More global food and drink brands have pulled out of Russia in protest over its attack on Ukraine. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Starbucks, Pepsi, Heineken and Lind are among those that are suspending sales and or operations in Russia. Irish beef and dairy farmers are being urged to start growing crops amid fears over grain shortages and soaring food prices as a result of the war in Ukraine. Separately, Ronald Kurz, CEO of poultry supplier Two Sisters Food Group, warned feed inflation could far exceed predictions if the conflict wasn't resolved quickly. Greggs also issued a warning on inflation this week. The chain said growing inflationary pressures would make products such as sausage rolls more expensive this year and curtail profits. Before the Ukraine conflict, it had expected price inflation of around 5%, but now it's looking more like 6-7%. Unilever has committed to more transparent reporting on the health and nutrition of its products following a campaign by shareholder pressure group Share Action. It will now publish an annual report on the performance of its global product portfolio against various government nutrient profile models, as well as its own nutrition standard. The first report will come out in October. Asda has revealed plans to add a further 100 in-store specialist greengrocers to its stores as part of efforts to revamp its fresh offer. As of next month, 250 Asda stores will have dedicated greengrocers working in them. Waitrose and Aldi have announced they will no longer sell disposable barbecues because of their impact on wildlife and natural habitats. Estimates suggest more than a million disposable grills end up in landfills in the UK every year. 
And finally, Morrison's has launched a rental scheme for salad boxes to reduce plastic packaging in its stores. It's trialing the new scheme in four stores initially. These are some of the big food and grocery retail stories this week. You can find links to everything I mentioned in the show notes and on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Alice Rackley. Alice, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Julia. You are CEO of Polytag, which is a provider of track and trace technology for plastic packaging. I'm going to ask you to explain what that means in a second. But big picture, you work with brands and retailers to help them prepare for things like deposit return schemes and extended producer responsibility. And you're generally working towards a circular economy for plastic packaging. You yourself worked in retail for a very long time. You were at M&S for many years where you worked on projects around consumer tech and apps and digital transformation, among others. Plastic packaging doesn't seem like an obvious next step after that. What made you interested in working in this area and in joining Polytag? That's a good question, Um, because I I definitely did what I call a double pivot when I moved into this role. I moved out of a lifetime of corporate into a startup. So that was one real big shift. And then I also changed sector completely. So I moved from retail, as you said, to the world of recycling, which has been really (laughs) fascinating. Um, And it's one of those moves where um, at the time it might not make much sense but retrospectively you can see why there's a a, a good connection Um, and what I say to people is that when I was in retail I was leading teams and I was part of teams that were going through digital transformation and um, that was very much the sort of trend for the last 10 years I suppose for retailers to get themselves online with a a decent customer experience in the digital space Um, and now I think that we're we're, we're all facing a new challenge there's a sustainability transformation on most retailers agenda and technology can actually support those ambitions and those strategies and so yeah funnily enough although they seem like quite different worlds there there is a big um, you know similarity in many respects. Yeah, I think that's super interesting, actually, drawing that comparison between digital transformation and what you called sustainability uh, transformation. Uh, and I'm really keen to, to quiz you on this in a little bit more detail. Can you just in very simple terms explain what you do at Polytag and why there is a need for technology like that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, um, we, we when we think about describing and tagging and tracing things, Um, and you talk about it for plastics people are a bit surprised but actually people have been tagging and tracing all sorts of products for quite a a long time and if you look at the tobacco industry on the bottom of every single pack of cigarettes you buy there is a serialized tag which helps manufacturers to track it through the supply chain and also to guard against fraud or counterfeiting etc and the same thing happens with prescription medicine because there is a requirement to know serialized details about where all the drugs are and how they're transitioning through the supply chain. So in certain categories where it's important for manufacturers to know where their products are and what's happening to them, it's not actually that unusual to tag and trace 
items through the supply chain. And with this sustainability transformation we were just talking about, it's becoming apparent, I think, to some, hopefully more, but some <laughs> uh, manufacturers and retailers and brands that deal in single-use recyclable packaging that they really need to know a bit more about what, what's happening to this um, stuff as it's moving through the supply chain. Um, and so there is growing interest in, you know, wanting to capture data that tells them how their packaging is transitioning through the supply chain and then armed with that data to be able to respond to not only consumer pressure about, you know, is this getting recycled? Is this recyclable? But also increasingly responding to growing government legislation in the in the space. Um, so, yeah, that's why you would be interested in tagging and tracing products to, I guess, to know what happens to it once it's hit the bin. Because <laughs> nobody knows at the moment once you've rinsed your yogurt pot out. <laughs> what happens next? Yeah. <laughs> And so how does it work from a sort of a practical point of view then? What, how is the tag added to the packaging? And at what points can you then track it through the supply chain? That's a good question. So Polytag is actually two different tagging systems that work together and they are driven off a central platform. So it's a platform solution. Um, it, it also leverages as many existing processes as possible so that we can fit in easily with business current operations. And as a consequence, we are using um, the product barcode number. It's a 14 or a 13 digit, I think it's called a global trade item number. But yeah, it's commonly referred to as a barcode. And what we do is we transform that barcode number into a black QR code, which we can apply to the product label and then we also transform it into a uv tag format which we can spray onto the material the packaging material itself um, or onto the label and those two tags then have a number of opportunities to be traced through the supply chain the black qr code can be interacted with by consumers using their mobile device you can interact with it just using your camera on your smartphone in, in camera technology to read a QR code, or you can download an app. Um, and every interaction with that QR code is then recorded on our central platform because the QR codes are serialized. So they're not just a representation of the barcode, but they're a representation of the barcode and a serialized character string. So um, those retailers and brands that are deploying Polytag technology can have some really amazing granular detail about the packaging and the interactions that they're getting with those items of packaging because each Polytag, each QR code is unique. And so every instance of interaction with it is captured. And it's quite different to some of the other QR codes that you might see featured on packets at the moment which just take you to um, one website and it's difficult to really understand the granular analytics that going on behind that interaction um, and then the uv tag is used to trace the packet once it's hit the bin as we say um, and there are some really innovative companies that have deployed hardware into 
recycling facilities and they are starting to analyse um, particularly the material types that are being processed in the recycling facilities. And if packets have a UV poly tag sprayed onto them, it means that even when the label has come off, you can still know the ownership of that packet. And this is particularly of interest to um, brands that might be selling product in generic packaging. So we're all familiar with our milk containers. They're made of HDPE, high density polyethylene, and they all look the same. Once the labels come off, you would never know who had put that packet onto the market. And the same can also apply for bleach bottles, they look very similar, and um, three litre bottles of you know, fizzy drink and very similar. Um, and so, yeah, if brands are interested in knowing um, where in the UK their packets are being processed and recycled and they want to know if they're even getting recycled at all, uh, then applying a poly tag to the material itself um, can help them to trace it through the material recovery facilities as we, as we call them. And we already touched um, a little earlier on extended producer responsibility, where, of course, that sort of sense of what happens with my packaging if I'm ultimately responsible for it is, is, is a question that, that is much higher now on people's agendas than it was in the past. What is your sense of um, how retailers and brands are preparing for EPR at the moment? How ready are they? And what are the sort of headaches, essentially, or, or concerns that they have at the moment? Well, the first concern, which I think most people have got, is that it's been delayed. So mm -hmm. the announcement of the extended producer responsibility consultation, which incidentally closed on the 4th of June last year, uh, is still not being released by the government. And there is a lot of um, concern, I think, that there could be further delays about how extended producer responsibility is going to be implemented. But the delay aside, I think... Um, we're starting from a position of like deep inequality when it comes to the way supply chains um, currently operate and how they are, have been invested in in the past. And as a consequence, what we see when we look at particularly packaging supply chains is that at the beginning of the life cycle of a product, we have incredibly efficient highly automated robotic AI factories that have been built and have been implemented to push product out onto the market in the fastest, uh, lowest cost way possible to get the sale. And once it's sold, there has been zero investment for many, many years, very limited investment, I should say, for many, many years in recovering the packaging and then processing it and recycling it successfully. And I've been fortunate enough to visit quite a number of recycling facilities since I started in this role. And to say that some of them feel Victorian in the way that they have been fitted out and the way they are maintained is um, not an exaggeration. I mean, uh, I, I've been staggered at how um, manual a lot of the processes are we still have people standing by conveyor belts sorting material out um, and then we also have lots and lots of examples of um, material recovery facilities with kit that's broken or not fit for purpose um, 
And on top of all of that, of course, there is no data, no analytics. And so you talk to them about how are you measuring the volume of material that you're processing? How do you categorize what types of material processing? Do you have any idea of the main brands that you are helping to recycle? There is nothing. <laughs> so that comparison between the beginning of the supply chain and the end of the supply chain just confirms to me that extended produce responsibility, which would hopefully see far more investment in the, the latter half of the life cycle, which can only be a good thing. And it, and it must happen soon because it, we are not in a position where all parts of the supply chain are made equal at the moment. Absolutely. And on that point about um, sort of sharing insights into what the recycling infrastructure actually looks like, you're, you're quite active on LinkedIn and you recently had a, a video that got a lot of traction where you showed, you know, what was happening inside your, your local recycling centre. And there's a whole story background to that. But what really kind of um, caught my attention was just a how much uh, traction and how many comments you got just from showing what that looks like on the inside and I remember you saying at the time there's a sort of sense that there's so much discussion around recycling so many people writing about recycling and having views on recycling who've never been in an actual recycling center just to talk to me a little bit about the reaction you've had to that video and why you think it is so important that people actually see what this stuff looks like on the inside <laughs> yeah I was I was quite shocked actually because I think it's tipped over 25,000 views now that wow. video on LinkedIn yeah um but I think on reflection um, maybe I shouldn't be so surprised because I am as is the case for most people up until I took this role I had no idea what it was like inside a recycling facility and um, it's not to say that I wasn't a very conscious um, consumer and I absolutely did rinse my yogurt pots out and took care to make sure I was reading the labels about what could and couldn't be recycled but that was the extent of it I, I, I really didn't give any thought to what happened next um, I guess because we only buy things for, for the contents right <laughs> just as a as a byline like I've got two children and they eat yogurt like it's going out of fashion and and it, no sooner have I put it in the fridge then there's a pot in the bin and I, I actually find that quite a challenge now that I work in this space because I think well I only bought that for the yogurt which has been eaten and I know what's gonna I know how that yogurt gets processed right without getting into too much detail I have no concern about the product itself and the impact that that has on the planet but the pot that stays around with us for years if it's not handled correctly um, and so yeah I, I suppose getting back to your question the amount of interest in the video was precisely the same reason that I find it fascinating going around a recycling centre is the is the combination of the kind of oh this is what it's like you know the reality but then also that that sort of I suppose the next door which is oh my goodness we have got such a long way to go to actually deliver the experience and the processes and the operation that I think most people think is already happening. But we are such a long way away from it, you know. 
And you talked about um, the level of investment that goes into that sort of start of the supply chain when you try and make the product and get it out to get the sale in as efficient a way as possible, contrasting with what happens at the end of the life cycle. Is your sense that, you know, because there's so much discussion around how poorly set up the recycling infrastructure is, is in this country and in many other countries, as retailers and as brands, are you expecting to see more of them become active players and investors in that system as opposed to just users of the system? That it, Do they need to invest in, in that infrastructure in order to have the products be treated and recycled in the way that they are promising their consumers they will? Yes, I think so, yeah. And it will be a combination of um, various pieces of legislation and um, hopefully some kind of shift in the value of these recycled resources. So, you know, the legis- on the legislation front, there's, um, as we've already talked about, extended producer responsibility. Um, there's deposit return schemes on certain in-scope containers. There's the plastic packaging tax, which goes live in think, 22 days time, 1st mm-hmm. of April. Um, and then we've also got a um, waste tracking consultation that's live at the moment, closes mid- middle of April. And so... I think there is going to be an increasing focus um, because of legislation um, on needing to invest in these facilities. And then, as I said, you know, looking ahead, you would hope that people will start to value the recycled material more. So we are seeing already an increase in the price of recycled plastic as a consequence of the plastic packaging tax. Um, and And I think that is not just an economic shift for people to make but also like a psychological shift for people as well because I I never looked at my recycling bin and thought that it had anything of any value in it but of course it does and when the council comes and takes away your recycling they are actually picking up in some respects like a revenue opportunity from your your curbside or your back door um and that the signs are that the value of those materials in that recycling bin are going to continue to increase. And I think that's a good thing and will drive changes in the sector as well. And But at the same time, as you've already mentioned, there are still lots of shifts, lots of changes that, that need to happen. And it does bring us to the first article you've picked, which is from letsrecycle.com. And the headline is Global Plastics Life Cycle Far From Circular, OECD says. Um, now, for the benefit of listeners, this is reporting on a recent report by the OECD, which shows the annual global production of plastics has doubled since the year 2000. And the OECD says uh, we need to see far more radical solutions, including technology solutions, but also more radical policies, uh, as well as better international cooperation to make the plastics value chain more circular. Alice, I think people listening to this might say, hang on, but there's been loads happening on plastic. Maybe not back in 2000, but the last few years we've had Blue Planet 2, David Attenborough, we're all much more aware of plastic ways, all these commitments and pledges that I see from brands and retailers. Surely things can't be as bad as this report makes it out to be. So square that circle for us. How can it be true that on the one hand, it feels like there's so much noise and so many announcements happening on plastic, and at the same time, we have a report like this that paints quite a shocking picture of what is actually happening in the system. 
Yeah. So I'll just use one example. I'm going to talk about Coca-Cola, not because I have anything against them, but they are one of the largest producers of single use plastic globally. And just to put it into context, they produce three million tons of plastic every year, which is the equivalent of dispatching from their factories 200,000 bottles a minute. Okay. And of those 200,000 bottles a minute, uh, an increasing majority of them are now labelled as recyclable and made from recycled material. But if you asked anybody at Coca-Cola HQ, do you know if any of those bottles are actually getting recycled? They would not know the answer. And so, you know, the, the article is, is a little bit despairing, but it is indicative of the fact that there is still not enough data for even the largest corporations to be able to say with confidence that our recyclable bottles are actually getting recycled. And this is, as you say, this is uh, true, not just of Coca-Cola. It's, for no. true. it's, it's true of, it's of everyone, Everybody. essentially. And, you know, just to, to peel away another layer there, Coca-Cola saying that their bottles are made from 100% recycled material. It doesn't mean that they're made from recycled Coca-Cola bottles. You know, when we talk about circularity, you know, the utopia is that a Coke bottle gets recycled and made back into a Coke bottle. Okay. Um, but it's just, it's not the case. They're just buying a lot of recycled material because they can um, and arguably therefore depriving some other brands, smaller brands probably, from being able to buy any recycled PET. Um, and so there's some really interesting market dynamics going on within the recycled material space. And so I think it's also just interesting to think about what does good recycling look like? What is true circularity? You know, there's there's grades of success, I suppose, in this space. And what how what would you say meets the definition of good recyclability or circularity? Well, the reason, uh, one of the many reasons I really love what we're doing at Polytag is that the solution with a tag um, that's linked to your barcode on the packaging means that in theory, and we are proving it with trials in practice, a company could tag their bottles and have them identified in a recycling facility and then um, robotically picked off um, the conveyor belt so that they end up with what we would call very pure feedstock. <laughs> um, I'm getting to learn these bits of terminology as I go. I say feedstock is the, you know, the recycled recovered material that can then be sent for onward uh, reprocessing into new bottles. So it's absolutely the case that technology is developing and is, is becoming available to those brands that are interested in achieving what I would see as true circularity um, insofar as they could put a polytag, a UV polytag on their packaging and it could be spotted in a 
recycling centre and could be removed by a robot so that they have their own pure feedstock um, in order to then reprocess and make into new bottles. And when you're working um, and, and having conversations with retailers and different brands, are there certain categories that you find are particularly open to having this conversation or, or certain categories that are particularly in need of this uh, sort of uh, technology? Well, at the moment, Polytag um, is focused just on plastic bottles. Mm. And the reason that we are developing a solution for that particular category is because of the deposit return scheme legislation. And so, yeah, we're talking to a lot of brands and retailers that are looking for solutions um, to support with that piece of legislation. And Polytag is a really big um, proponent supporter of a digital deposit return scheme idea where we would be able to provide households an alternative to the reverse vending machine model which is currently being proposed for deposit return schemes um, and instead of them needing to claim their deposit through a reverse vending machine would actually just download an app on their smartphone and scan a polytag on the packaging and put it in their usual recycling bin which is, um, I think, far more of a 21st century approach to <laughs> deposit return schemes um, and actually could very much complement a network of reverse vending machines. Um, and so there's a lot of interest from brands and retailers um, that are concerned about the implications, I suppose, of not just having to um, manage in-scope deposit return scheme containers through their supply chain, but also have to manage the reverse vending machines on their premises you know absolutely because because that is that as you say that is currently the system that is being proposed that you are having to go to back to your retailer or wherever the reverse vending machine is and you're returning it there and that's where you're getting the deposit back that's right yeah and having run supermarkets and being part of management teams in supermarkets in my early career I would not be very keen on the idea of one of these huge machines sat outside my front door breaking down all the time and then people leaving bags of bottles to blow about the car park and all sorts of things so yes I think um, you know we're having a lot of interesting conversations with retailers that want to know um, how a digital deposit return scheme could complement and potentially limit the number of reverse vending machines that are installed and is that something that would need to be endorsed by the government? I mean, is this something that they need to officially make part of their DRS plans? Or is it something that can just be set up in partnership between yourselves, um, a, a, a retailer and some brands that are interested in doing this? It's a good question. So um, from a legislative perspective, Scotland have already decided that they are going to roll out deposit return schemes 2024 um, and they are going for an exclusive reverse vending machine model which means that they are going to need 37,000 take back points across the region and of those 37,000 take back points approximately 10,000 are going to be reverse vending machines which as an ironic aside, reverse vending machines are incredibly carbon intensive bits of machinery to manufacture. And they require a whole new logistics network to service and empty. 
and they probably will increase the number of car journeys from households driving with boots fulls of deposit redeeming bottles back to um, these machines. And so, you know, when you think about this as a, an environmental slash sustainability play, it just seems a little bit um, strange, I suppose. And that's another reason why a digital solution that runs alongside it actually does offer genuine environmental benefits. Um, so, yeah, we know what Scotland are doing. But we don't know yet what England, Wales and Northern Ireland governments are going to propose. Um, the consultation for deposit return schemes in England, Wales and Northern Ireland closed as well on the 4th of June last year. We were due to hear in January the outcome from that consultation, but it's been delayed. Um, and who knows? <laughs> when we will get an outcome on that consultation so yeah, um, there's a pattern here isn't there <laughs> but just to build on what you asked about you know whether this could be a scheme that potentially was rolled out um independent of legislation mm -hmm. absolutely um so the application of a polytag qr code on a piece of packaging on the label can be used to de deliver all sorts of uh, really cool consumer interaction possibilities, including um, a loyalty scheme app, including an in-house deposit return scheme if um, retailers and brands felt so inclined. So, yeah, we're having some really good conversations with people that are saying, oh, can we wait for the government to introduce their legislation? And should we just get started with something that's delivered separately of legislation? Very interesting. Now, the second article I wanted to talk to you about is one I've picked, and it's from the FT, and the headline says, World Leaders Agree to Draw Up Historic Treaty on Plastic Pollution. So I guess we're continuing our conversation about what's happening with plastic at a systemic and at a global level, because this is news that we've taken a major step towards having a global, legally binding treaty to tackle plastic pollution with more than 200 countries agreeing to negotiate such a treaty. So we don't have the treaty yet, it's going to have to be drawn up, but the hope is that it will be agreed by the end of 2024. Alice, what do you think is the significance of having this kind of global treaty, this global agreement, and what stood out to you from the article? Well, I mean, first of all, it is very significant, and there has been an incredible amount of work done by dedicated people globally to get this over the line and it's really a commendable achievement in terms of its significance though <laughs> this is how I, I have to fight my cynicism but you know there this is not the first global treaty um, that is being developed to try and tackle climate change right <laughs> think about the Paris climate agreement for one and um and the bottom line is that you can't just turn off the plastic tap because there are many areas of our modern lives that entirely depend upon plastic because it is, well, first of all, just in, in the use of in the healthcare setting, you know, it's sterile, it's clean, it's flexible. Um, you know, plastic's got some great properties that mean it's unlikely to ever disappear entirely, right? As much as we would love to say, I'm, I'm never going to have plastic in my life. If you were admitted to hospital, you'd be 
pretty pleased that plastic existed because it would probably save your life. Um, so, yeah, we can't just turn off the plastic tap. But, yes, absolutely, we should be looking at alternatives. So, you know, there are plant-based alternatives to plastic that are really developing quickly and show lots of promise. We should absolutely be reducing unnecessary plastics. And, you know, it's interesting to see that wrap report as well that came out last week um, that said, we should be removing plastics from fruit and veg in particular because they are in some cases unnecessary. We should be reducing, uh, yeah, and reusing where possible. And also, you know, my space, we should be recycling better. <laughs> you know, um, and all of these things, all of these ambitions to cut the use of plastic on a global level. Um, course they need legislation and they need treaties and they need agreements and consultation and lots of conversation and even more paperwork um, but the the truth is you also in parallel need people to design build and scale technology solutions that is going to enable us to find alternatives to plastic to reduce it to reuse it and recycle it better there was one bit in the article that really uh, stood out to me, and it chimes with something that you've talked about a little earlier, which is this sense of really recognising the value of, of, of recycled material as well. Um, there's mention in the article uh, that some big FMCG companies were really supportive of this treaty, and in particular pushing for it to cover the whole life cycle, because partly to drive packaging innovation, but also this sense that this might help bring down the price of recycled material. And as you've said, that post-consumer PET has gone absolutely bonkers in terms of, of price um, recently. Is your expectation that having that sort, this kind of treaty, this sort of global signal will help to um drive investment and then ultimately bring down the, the price of recycled material? I honestly don't know <laughs> because I think when we start talking about circularity and moving away from the take-make-waste model, which has been so linear and that we've basically developed entire economies around, um, it's hard to, I think, think through all of the different dynamics and what that might mean for price of material and the cost of goods and things like that. Um, I think philosophically, I think it's interesting to consider the fact that, for example, people value a tree more when it's cut down than when it's growing, you know, like, the, um, and then you start thinking about, well, what other natural resources do we value more you know, and, and what states do we place a higher value on them in? And with plastics, of course, you know, we're just taking oil out of the, out of the ground. It, it, it's not free, obviously, because there's a cost of producing that, but then it transitions through these various different states and ends up ultimately as hopefully a like three times recycled, you know, piece of plastic. Um, and, and how does the value of all of those transition states change if you move from a linear supply chain, take, make, waste, to a circular supply chain? I don't know. It's, um, it's really interesting to step through it. And, and I suppose the other thing that's an interesting concept is this idea of ownership of packaging 
you know, we've been talking about, well, Coca-Cola, do they want their own Coca-Cola bottles back? Well, that's quite a strange thought, actually, because are we saying that Coca-Cola have now always owned the packaging and they only sold you the product? So packaging a service kind of, yeah. yeah. At the moment, packaging is a sunk cost. And, and, And the way that we account in business world for the cost of packaging it's just written off right um but now we're saying hold on circularity is the model is there now like a, a some some sort of secondary value of the packaging and if there is a secondary value or a residual value in that packaging who who should have that value mm. And I'm not sure. I haven't. I don't know how it's going to work out, but it's really interesting, you know, like that how we value raw materials, how we value the raw materials as they get processed in different stages of their life cycle. Is it have we have we appropriately valued these things? And and then who who benefits from the value, particularly when it's in the bin? Where, where, you know, most people, once it's in the bin, most people will say it's worth nothing. Well, now we're saying, hold on a minute. Yeah. It is worth something. And, and okay, well, then whose is it? I'm going to change tack a little bit because your final article is really interesting. It's from The Drum. And the headline is, will Coinbase's Super Bowl ad really change the landscape of TV QR codes? And I really like that you picked this article because when I saw that you'd sent it through, my reaction was, what's she talking about? Is she talking about QR codes and Coinbase when we're having a conversation about recycling and packaging? But there is a connection there. Um, yeah. Just very briefly um, for, for listeners. So Coinbase is a cryptocurrency trading platform that doesn't matter for for the sake of argument here, but it ran a really successful high profile ad during the Super Bowl um, that basically showed nothing but a bouncing QR code um, and it got a massive reaction, broke the internet, according uh, to the Drum article. And the idea behind the ad is that um, people don't really pay attention to TV advertising the way they used to. They are on their smartphones. The minute the ad break comes on, they're they're on their phones. um, And there is an opportunity, therefore, for advertisers to say, you know, if people are on their smartphones, let's engage them on their smartphones and let's use a QR code to to do that. Um, And the interesting point about the the sort of next generation of QR codes that's coming at market is that they're not just that single quite basic QR code that you talked about a little bit earlier that just takes you to one side, but there are opportunities to do lots of smart things with QR codes now, personalize them, customize them uh, to, to the individual. So it was a, a very unexpected article pick, but super interesting. But tell me why this headline grabbed your attention and what you made of it. Hi. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, I thought, first of all, the fascinating thing from my perspective is that the QR codes finally come of age, you know, they've been around. For... <laughs> it's taken a while. Yeah. I mean, when I first started working in um, retail technology, it was, I don't know, about 2010, 2011. And we used to sort of joke about the QR code, like, 
who who would ever scan a QR code? Like, first of all, you have to download an app or a QR code reader, and then you've got to make sure you've got a decent Wi-Fi signal. And, and yeah, I, I, you know, we forget how much mobile technology has developed in the last 10 years. Really, it's exceptional. And um, it, at the same time, you know, barcoding technology has really evolved as well. And so, yeah, I just, I thought it was fascinating just from the perspective of, what was written off, I suppose, as a sort of technology that's never going to take off. It's now come of age and it's, uh, yeah, it was a, a really successful ad that Coinbase ran. Um, but from my perspective, um, with Polytag, we are really harnessing the power of barcoding technology and QR codes in particular. And we're able to do some really quite cool things with logic and the way that you can redirect people to different web addresses using resolver technology which is a type of technology that sits behind um, a qr code um, and you can really as a, a brand as a retailer do so much more with a qr code in our case you know so much more with a polytag if you put it on your packaging that doesn't just have to be to enable the circular economy and that supply chain process to work well but it is basically now a new channel for you to engage consumers through. Um, one pandemic later, everybody knows what to do with the QR code. Um, everybody knows you don't need an app to interact with the QR code. You just open your camera and you can interact with it and, and visit the websites. Um, and then, yeah, from, from the sort of technology uh, angle, there is some really, really interesting things that you can do in terms of changing the website that the QR code directs you to, delivering geo-specific content, depending on where the QR code is scanned. Um, and so that's really you know, the power of a polytag uh, to help us all recycle more. And it's driven through what once was seen as obsolete technology, and it's now a really integral part of not just Polytag solution, but a number of um, different sectors that use them very, very widely and very successfully. And I think you've already answered my next question, which is what was it that really changed this? Was it the pandemic that and and, and just getting people into that habit of uh, checking in uh, to, to venues for tracking and tracing that really um, turned fortunes around for, for the QR code? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's had a, a massive impact um, in people's sort of propensity to engage with QR codes because it's just become second nature to many of us with the pandemic. But I think it's possibly as well the shift from needing to have an app, so downloading an mm. app, to, to this in-camera technology that now most smartphones have got ready to roll. And I think it's um, removed some of the friction that, people felt in engaging with QR codes previously. Um, so yeah, I would say it's probably a combination of the pandemic and better mobile technology. Absolutely fascinating. We are out of time, but if listeners uh, want to connect with you afterwards via QR code or otherwise, um, what's the <laughs> best way to uh, find out more about what you do and to get in touch with you? Oh, thanks, Julia. Yeah, I'd love to hear from anybody that was interested in um, learning and discovering more about Polytag. Uh, we've got a website, www.polytag.co.uk. 
and I'm also as you said quite active on LinkedIn and I'm very happy for people to send me a quick message on LinkedIn and I will reply and we'll see where the conversation takes us. Super. Alice, thank you so much for being my guest and for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.